0: We're wrapping our final and third message here uh, in our gospel core value of gospel community. After that, we're going to uh, study what it means to be a gospel centered church uh, in the aspect of gospel mercy and justice, and also gospel spreading uh, to commemorate this month uh, that we're going to be focusing on the nations. After that, uh, we'll be entering our time of Advent. Our Advent season, Christmas is actually right around the corner. So today we're going to wrap up our third uh, message on gospel community. And to introduce this passage, I want to share about a piece of news that I came across uh, lately. I don't know how I come about these kinds of news, but I recently found out uh, that there's going to be a a major shift uh, that's going to take place. uh, That's going to impact literally every single person in the world and this shift uh, defining what a shift is it, it changes the way that we see things from here on out and this shift it's going to change the way we see everything supposedly and it's not political but it's actually a scientific shift all because of this guy right here called the Lagrange K. And this Le Grand K is a metal alloy, uh, kept in a secure place in a small town in France called Saint Cloud, and it was there since 1889. And what the Le Grand K is, it's a alloy, a specially made and calibrated cylinder which serves as the global standard for the kilogram. So all of our kilogram measurements are based off of this Lagrande K, and it has been for 130 years. And so there's now going to be a shift that does away with the Lagrande K, and they're going to be using these technical gravitational pulls and electric currents, and that's going to be the foundation, the standard that we're going to use for our measurements. The reason for this change is because... Who has access to this Le Grand K? Just a handful of people in France. And because not everyone has access to it, what actually has been going on is all of our measurements are slightly not there as it should be. But now having now a calibrated, a universal calibrated measurement of the kilogram, it's supposedly going to affect affect everything from agriculture to electronics to science to business, how we measure things. Now I'm a little skeptical of how much I'm going to be affected personally, but in terms of economics, in terms of trade, um, in the scientific community, uh, especially in terms of making metals and making materials, is going to have a huge impact. This physicist by the name of Klaus von Klitzing, he says, we are about to witness a revolutionary change in the way the kilogram is defined. I bring this up uh, because I want us to undergo a similar shift. Remember, the way that we look at things from here on out, a shift in the way that we see this church. The common view is that the church is a kind of a club that is an optional commitment that Christians can make after they receive the gospel. So being part of a church, we see that it does not necessarily mean that you're a Christian as we've been preaching all along, right? It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that is the basis of our salvation. But there's also the danger of emphasizing that so much that we neglect the church. Where we emphasize so much on the individual aspect of our salvation, how I have faith in Christ, I place my trust, I have a place in heaven, that we neglect the important part of being incorporated into the church and not seeing it as a club or an optional place uh, where you can make a commitment, but something that God has specifically placed into your life so that your gospel fruit can now be displayed within the body. My prayer is for this shift to happen so that we don't see the church as a club, as this place we just gather for our own benefit, but to see it as an unbreakable bond that stems forth from your salvation, that you have received Christ, but also along with that, it is how God places you in a local church, in his body, so that we could live on mission, so that we can say that we are people of God, that we are people who have received Christ, grace and i pray that it creates this this change this shift a revolutionary change in the way that we see church and our lives as part of that church and i do so because we see that kind of shift in ephesians chapter 4 there are two shifts in this passage the first shift is one of the main doctrines that we've been teaching all along the shift how how In the beginning, there is the indicative of the gospel. Indicative meaning what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Indicative meaning it is declared. It does not depend on your effort, on on your work, not what you have done or what you will do. But in Christ, he has declared you justified through faith. And that is the indicative, and it is important to have that first, and then comes, here's the shift, the imperative. In light of that indicative, in light of the gospel and us receiving it, here is now the imperative, how we are to live. You can see that shift in verse 1. He says, therefore, in light of this gospel that I've been preaching, the indicatives in chapters 1, 2, and 3, now in chapter 4, Paul writes, I, therefore, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Do you see the imperative here? The whole book of Ephesians, it's six chapters long, and it's beautifully designed how the first three chapters are the indicatives, and chapters four, five, six are the imperatives. We love those imperatives, such as honor your parents, submit to them, love one another, and those are the imperatives, but it stems off from the indicative. We've been preaching that. We've been preaching that in Romans, also in Ephesians, and other messages as well. Now, here's the second shift. If you look at verse 1, we see that we are to walk in this manner, but how are we to do it? And this is the shift where it comes from the individual to now the collective body of believers. Uh, Not yet. Uh, Not only are we to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, but to do that, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And this is the shift that I want us to examine. In chapters 1 through 2 and 3, there has been a focus on you receiving the gospel. You having faith. You receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. And now in chapter 4, there is a shift away from the individual now to the collective. I therefore urge you, the English doesn't capture it as well because we don't differentiate the singular you from the plural you. But in, in the Greek, it's a plural you. He's speaking to the collective. And look at the way that he writes here. He says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There is one body of believers. God is Father of all. Grace was given to each one of us for the building up the body of Christ. Us being equipped for the work of ministry until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God so that we may grow up in every way into him so that not just us as individuals but we as the whole body joined together can be built up in love there is an unbreakable bond between your individual salvation to your inclusion into the collective body of jesus christ called the church you cannot separate the two to be a follower of jesus is to be a member of his church in some when god calls you out of darkness into light into salvation not only are you being called out of that darkness, but he's calling you into the church. That word, ecclesia that word prefix, ek, means to be out, to come out into the world and into the community of believers. And this is why even church fathers like Augustine, he makes this bold statement saying, those who do not have the church as their mother do not have God as their father. Three questions I want us to consider from our passage in light of this shift from the individual to the collective. Number one, who we are as a church. Number two, uh, what we do as a church. And finally, why we do it. Three simple points. Who we are, what we do, and why we do them. Point number one: who are we? The church, we are made up of people, and this is the defining phrase: people who have received grace. That is who we are, recipients of grace. We see in verse one that he gives the command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called. And that means that our lives should look like the gospel. It shifts everything, the way that we do and live life. For example, the gospel tells us that Christ, he was infinitely rich in heaven, having all that he could ever have wanted. But yet, in his kindness, he gives up his place in heaven. He gives up his heavenly riches, and he who once was rich became poor so that you could become rich in the gospel in jesus christ you will reign with him you will have authority with him over everything on the universe that means everything is yours in light of that gospel now How should we live? How should we think about the money that we have? How should we think about the possessions that we have? If we truly have the gospel, then we won't be so stingy with our time, our finances, our energy and resources to to give and bless others. Do you see how the gospel impacts the way you live? The imperative, it drives it. And so that's what Paul is talking about, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now here's where it comes in verse 2. How are you to do that? Not by yourself. He says, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you think about it, these things, you cannot do them by yourself. Can you be united by yourself in your own room in a corner? No. Can you be humble by yourself without having any interaction with other people? Can you maintain a bond of peace by yourself? You can't. These depend on other people. So here's the conclusion. The way the gospel is going to show in your life is how you do these things, not by yourself, but how you do them in the church. You want to see something tangible that this message really got you? How do you look at the brother next to you and your sister? And how do you pray for them? How do you love them? That's what Paul is getting at. The way the gospel shows itself is the way you live in his church. That means that the people in this room, they are not just your church-going friends. They're not just people who, who happen to be worshiping with you in the same place and same time, but they are tailor-made specific intentional ways that god is he's sending into your life he's sending these people into your life so that you can have the opportunity to display this gospel message that you have received do you see the shift that paul wants us to have change the way you see one another there are the ways that you can show how much this gospel really changed you yeah, I, I share this one scene. Like, I love it. It sticks with me the whole uh, for a long time. And it's the movie of uh, Evan Almighty. Uh, it's Bruce Almighty Part Two, where Steve Carell he's a modern day uh, Noah, and he receives instruction to build this. Uh, ark and he has to put animals in it and it's happening in modern day so as he's doing so he's getting ridiculed he quits his job they're in a financial mess his family's being split apart as he's making this ark and there's one scene where his wife uh, she's just there by herself she's very distressed and she orders a plate of fries And, and and throughout the movie you see that her her main desire was for her family to be close That was her prayer request. But in light of all that was going on, she sees that her family is actually being split apart. They're fighting with one another. Uh, They're in a financial situation. And so God, in the form of Morgan Freeman, comes as her waiter, and he engages in conversation with her. And, And look at what he says. Let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience... Do you think God gives them patience or does he give them the opportunity to be patient if you pray for courage does God give him courage or does he give them opportunities to be courageous if someone pray for the family to be closer do you think God zaps them and gives them warm fuzzy feelings or does he give them opportunities to love one another we want this church to be united to be maintaining this bond of peace as we live on mission what are we praying for are we praying for god zap us change us instantaneously that's not how it works walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and the way you have the opportunity to do that is the way you treat one another the way you see these people do you see them as people that just happen to be here, or are they tailor-made into your life so that you can grow and learn to be patient, grow and learn to be sacrificial, grow and learn to be like Jesus Christ from the closest spouse to your kids to the one person in community group that you don't really know? All of them tailor-made for you so that you could be gentle, humble, patient, bearing with one another and In order for that to happen, as we approach the church, we must have this shift. Do you truly see yourself as a recipient of grace? Paul makes sure that that idea of grace is in there. He says, the call to which you have been called. He writes that in verses 2 and verse 7. In verse 7, he says, those who have been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. This calling in theology, we have this term called effectual calling. And what that means is that when you became a Christian, that all that was required for you to be a Christian was done by God. Meaning, even the faith that you have god gave you that faith even a desire to even want to go to church to even want to know god god gave you that desire he didn't simply just give you the gospel he even gave you the heart your situation your uh, disposition all of those things so that you could receive the gospel one illustration we hear all the time is that the gospel is like medicine right you're sick in your sins and the gospel is freely given to you, and all you need to do is by faith take the medicine and, and drink it or, or take it or swallow it. But you know what? That's not what Ephesians 2 says. You're not sick, you're dead. And when you're dead, you cannot be 90% dead. You're a hundred percent dead. There is no medicine that you can take, there's no medicine you can swallow or chew. You need to be resuscitated to be resurrected from your sin, from dead to alive. That's the language that Paul uses. And so he uses that idea of grace to say, remember, that's who you were. You were dead. And now he has called you out of that deadness into life, into this church. And what that does is it gives us a sober view of ourselves as we approach these people. The two things that we are reminded is, number one, You do not think that you are too good for this church if you understand this grace. Do not think that you are too good for the people around you Because you will not survive spiritually without the body of a local church. The reason why Paul says to have a sober view, to have this idea of grace, is so that you don't depend on your your work ethic, your ability, your intelligence, your personality, or your experience with the church, knowing I know how church works. He's saying don't depend on those things because sooner or later, you will come to realize that you need people. Sooner or later, you will come to realize that, Best won't be enough and he's saying i'm giving you these people for your sake paul saying don't you dare think that you'll be able to go through this life trusting in yourselves or trusting in this idea this system that if you work hard then you will get whatever you worked for you know perhaps if there is the absence of A community in your life right now, you might not feel the need of others, but you will. And when that time comes, do you have these brothers and sisters in your life? Do not think you can live well on your own without the local church. Why? Because this idea of being renewed, as we read earlier, to be transformed, it requires the the intervention of outside forces. The illustration we use all the time is like a, a small sapling, a small tree as it's trying to grow. How does that grow? We see a seed cannot be transformed into a flower unless it has what? The intervention of outside forces, doesn't it? It needs sunlight, carbon dioxide. It needs nitrogen from the soil. It cannot grow from the resources inside. In the same way, you cannot be humble by yourself. You cannot be united or patient by yourself. You need these people to help you to transform into the likeness of Christ. The second sobering idea is don't think you are not good enough for this church either. That's what grace does. It makes you think you're not too good. It also makes you uh, think you're not good enough either. Doesn't make you think you're good enough. For example, as you approach this church, you might think that you have just so much sin in your life that you don't know much about church. You haven't had much experiences, and you see the way that other people are taking ownership and serving, and that might push you away. But Remember, the grace of the gospel reminds you, no, they are dead. They were dead just as you were dead. It equalizes us. And so it enables you to approach this church all being the same recipients of grace. That's who we are in the church. That's number one. Number two, what do we do as a church? What do we do? Well, we see that we are a church comprised of people who receive grace, and number two, we receive grace for building up the body. That's what we do. We build up the body of Christ. I want to do uh, an activity that I heard one pastor do, and it's called the word association game, and the game goes like this. If I say a word, what image comes to mind? What image or or images come to mind if I say a particular? So for example, if I say something like steak, what comes to mind? For some, they think of a restaurant. For some, they think of the kind of steak they want. For some, they think of how hungry they are. For some, they think of diets. If I say something like cowboys, what images come to mind? For a good number of you, You think of anger and hate. For one brother in our church, he's ecstatic, right? (laughs) One word, one idea can have different effects. My question now is, if I gave you this word, this phrase, what image comes to mind? Body of Christ. What comes to mind? Maybe you see ministries, like the children's ministry, the praise ministry. Perhaps you see a building. I think for us, that's a lesson that God has been teaching us so that we don't think the body of Christ is a physical building. I think a lot of us, we will think of the people, right? The body of Christ, one another. Let me take it a step further. What are they doing? what are the people doing in your mind? Are they just simply there, standstill, perhaps the way that I'm seeing all of you now, just gathered in one place? Or are they moving? Are they doing something? Because that's how Paul sees it. The body of Christ is not comprised of just People in one location just simply gathered, but the way he describes it, the verbs that he uses, every verb he uses that ing, equipped for building up the church, promoting peace, eager to maintain peace. It is all just, uh, just, just uh, seat with these action verbs, gerunds, right? Progressive verbs. So in Paul's mind, the church is not simply a group of people who stand there, but there are people who, who move, who, who are working, who are on the move and building up the church. You know, I spent, I think, good 45 minutes, literally, of trying to get a, uh, two pictures on the slides, and I failed. The first picture was a group of people just in one place, and the second was a gif where those people were moving, but I couldn't get that gif to move so i actually uh, scrapped that so here's my best attempt to help you remember this the church and this is for you younger folks the church it's not an instagram photo but it's a snapchat story (laughs) where they are moving where they are constantly on the move that's how paul's writing here that's the image that comes up in his mind when he says the body of christ is that how you see the church Do you simply see them just gather, or do you see them doing something, building something? Uh, There's a story about a Spartan king, and he was showing a, a, a visiting foreign king his kingdom, and this foreign king, he asked, where are the renowned walls of Sparta that I've heard about? And this Spartan king, he pointed to his army, and he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man is a brick. And though we're not fighting against intruders, but isn't that the idea when Peter writes that we are living stones, not dead ones, but stones that are actively on the move, being built for Christ's body from the young to the old to the single to the married to college student to youth group to our children, all of us are actively living and building the body. That's the image that Paul wants us to have. See, in verse 11, he gives this organizational structure that God gives to the church. What does he give? He gives the church the apostles, such as Paul, the prophets, as we see in the Old Testament, and through their teaching, through their word, it guides us and directs our living. God also gives us the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers, and we see that today in the missionaries, the pastors, uh, the, the teachers of the church. Now, what is their responsibility at the end of verse 11? What are they commanded to do? And we see as we look at verse 12, they are to or in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They are given to the church to equip all of you for the work of the ministry, to equip the congregation for the work, not they themselves to do the work. And this is actually a very difficult passage for me because the type of personality that I have, I have the tendency to rather do the work myself because it's easier. I'd rather myself do it than spend the time and energy showing someone else how to do it. But knowing this is my personality, when I was ordained, this was the specific verse given to me because my older brothers knew the type of person I was. They said, Luke, remember, your job here is not to do the work, but to equip the saints for the work. And that's very sobering because that tells me that how our church is doing is not based upon how well these ministries run not how solid the teaching is Not how well we live on mission, but the standard is how involved are the people for those ministries. How involved are the people in living out on mission? It's a very different standard, and that puts me on my knees because I'm very much dependent on God to work that in the church. I can't take responsibility for it. That's the standard on which I'm going to be measured, and it's a very sobering thought. It's through the work of the ministry of the saints, you guys, so that you can speak truth to one another in love, as we studied last week, so that you can build each other up in humility and gentleness and patience. And we read in verse 16, it says, only when each part is working properly, then the church grows, then the body grows. Do you see that? It's only when each member takes ownership of building one another of god's people that's when we will grow that means it has to see jesus as the head of this church and and we hear that a lot and we agree with that of course jesus is the head of this church and it's a very nice sounding phrase but what does that mean to you what does it mean if jesus is the head of the church And let me take you back to the Old Testament. If you remember, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he made them wander in the wilderness for 40-plus years, and then then he gave them the Promised Land. And in those years, how did they move from one place to the next? You know, there were about 2 million Israelites, including women and children. It was a big group. But the way that he, he organized the camp was, He placed the tabernacle, his presence, in the center of the camp. And he placed all the tribes around the camp. In spite of all that needed to be done, everyone was centered around God as he dwelt in the tabernacle, and it placed him right in the middle of the camp. And while God was in the center, there was no way to avoid that tabernacle. When you woke up in the morning and you went to the well to get water, you would see that tabernacle. Whenever you went to your friend's house, you would see that tabernacle. You can't miss it. Now, why is that tabernacle in the middle? Why is it in the center? It's not so that you can take a few seconds and stop and commemorate God and then go on with the rest of your activity. That's not why it was there. Because back then, the reason why something like that was in the center was not to be a memorial, but to be a command center. That's where the general was. That's where the king was. Because that was the place from which you could give orders. You do this. You carry out this act. And God was so involved in each tribe. He told one tribe, said, you know, your job is to take care of the tent pegs. That's your one job. And it may seem so low. I remember going to the beach. We bought a tent, and the worst thing that I have to do is put those pegs in those tents because you have to get on your knees and you have to use the ground. and dirt. But yet God is so involved. I want you to do this. That's what it means for Jesus to be the head. Jesus, not as a memorial, but as a commanding officer, the king of our lives. The tabernacle was in the center, not just to be a place of worship. It wasn't just so that they could gather once a week and remember how God brought them out of Egypt. It was so that they could hear clear instructions on how they are to rearrange their lives for the sake of when we make that challenge to center our lives around jesus we have to differentiate him as a memorial and a king to see jesus as a memorial it will gather people once a week on sunday singing a few praises hearing god's word and we'll call it a blessed sunday that's a memorial but a king he'll center all our decisions around him it's Jesus, the center, that commands our decisions and all the components of our lives, joy, our goals, our desires, and aspirations. So when we make decisions such as that vacation or, or how, what to do with that free night, going to God first, how do you want me to spend this time What are you calling me to do? He arranges our lives so that we can be obedient to his commands. But many of us, we don't want a king. We want a voiceless statue to whom we can come once in a while and pay our tributes. One pastor, Edmund Clowney, he writes, many people, they don't want to lose all contact with God, but they prefer that their relationships with God be handled by a professional Let a pastor do the praying. It is as well to have God available at a great distance. We might need God's help sometimes, perhaps in a counseling center. We might need God as a national God who protects our country. But to have God at the center of our lives, that is too close. Because his presence would be most inconvenient for our business deals, for our entertainment, for the way we spend our money. We're willing to be spiritually fed but not willing to spiritually live that out in the way we love and serve one another. We're willing to hold on to God's promises to be actualized in our lives but not willing to take those steps of faith, living for his kingdom so that he could give all these things into your life. We want to worship God at a distance because if he gets close, That means your life will have to be rearranged. You might have to give up certain engagements with your family. Your kids might have to take a hit. That's what rearranging does. Perhaps you can't spend and purchase that thing that you've been wanting to because you hear that there are people overseas dying for their faith. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Remember those who are in prison, for you are part of their body. He writes, Remember them as if you are in prison with them. You hear that and it changes the way you spend your money. That's what it means for Christ to be the head. And after we see this grace given to us, his infinite riches, and then his command for, for him to say, okay, now build up this church. I'm equipping you for this church, for one another, and take ownership of this church that I'm giving you. Now, I remember when I was younger, and for, and for some reason, this event is very clear in my mind. I remember one afternoon, uh, my dad was purchasing groceries, and he came home, and as soon as he pulled up, my mom said, go out and help your father bring in uh, the groceries. So I, I paused my video game, and, and I peeked my head out the front door, and I said, Dad, do you need any help? And he just kind of smirked, and he just kept on walking. He had a lot of bags in his hands. And he didn't respond, so I said it again. I said louder. I said, Dad, do you need my help? He just kind of smirked again. And he just went inside, and I thought, okay, he doesn't need my help. I asked, and I was conscious, free. I had no guilt. I went back to my video game. A few minutes later, he sits down on the couch and says, Luke, come here. I want to talk to you. And I knew right there he's going to give me a lesson. And I'm going to try my best to translate this from Korean. He says, Luke, you are not a visitor in this house. You're not a tenant where you have to ask me if I need your help. These groceries, they're not mine. They're yours. This house, it's not my house. It's your house. So you don't have to ask me for permission to help me with my things because they're your things so you go and do what you think needs to be done for your house for your groceries take ownership it changed the way i saw my house it was my dishes it was my room my food that's what it means for Jesus to be the center of this church where you hear his orders. And when you see somebody serving and you see yourself having the resources to help, you don't wait. Someone tell me what to do. You see a need. This is my church. And I'm going to serve this church because God gave me the people for my good, for my gospel fruit. It's a very minor difference, but as a parent, you will know what that means when you don't have to ask someone to do something, but they delight in serving for the sake of the house. Finally, why do we do this? Why do we serve this local church? And the answer is because Christ gave us as gifts for others. Earlier this week, Joanne and I saw a documentary on the Colosseum. And for me, it's one of the most amazing sights of Italy. We had to just, you know, take some time to remember our trip there. And, and, and when she and I saw it this summer, we were amazed by, by its size, the grandeur of the architecture. But as we were watching uh, this documentary, we got to learn a lot more about the makings of this uh, Coliseum, of how it took only five years to make it, which was amazing considering uh, the timing of how they engineered the ground to fill it with water so they could have these naval battles how there are hundreds of elevators underneath the ground that will bring up these soldiers and prisoners as they fought one another. And during the documentary, she goes, you know, I would have looked at the Colosseum differently had I known all the history behind it. And if I had known all that was put into it and I had known about all the fights and how the prisoners were fighting one another, I would have looked at it differently. And my response was, have you not seen Gladiator? (laughs) I knew from that movie. And she goes, yeah those 300 soldiers were really brave and i said wrong movie and right after i paid 2.99 on the amazon prime with the card that you gave me and i purchased gladiator i was tempted to pay an extra dollar for the hd version but 2.99 right there we saw the movie and in that movie we got an idea of what it meant to be a prisoner as you fought in that coliseum the reason why i'm bringing this up because this is what paul writes that first verse he says i therefore a prisoner for the lord a prisoner for the lord you know there's a funny word play going on because paul as he's writing this letter he's actually in prison this is a prison letter he's in chains but there's a double entendre when he's saying not only is he physically in chains but he is a prisoner for the lord Christ has held me captive, and my life now lives to serve him. And even watching that movie Gladiator helped us to understand what that meant. Because back then, if someone purchased you, you weren't just free. When Christ purchases you, yes, you are free, but not just free by yourself, but you are now, you have a new master, and that is Christ. that's how paul sees himself i am a prisoner for the lord that's how he writes in verse 8 right jesus he ascends into heaven and leads a host of what captives that's us because when jesus purchased you from your sin he is now holding you captive for himself it is for his benefit and so we saw that in that movie there was a slave trader by the name of proximo he purchased these gladiators and he uses it. He makes them fight in these, in these arenas to make a profit. The first line, though, that he tells his gladiators is this. He says, I did not pay good money for your company. I paid it so I could profit from your deaths." That was the empire that Paul lived in. The idea of captivity, of being a prisoner, was very much in the air. Now, he's using the same language because Jesus himself, he purchased your life, And you're not just free from sin. You have a new master where now you belong to him. Now, you are his prisoner. Now, here's where Jesus is different from Proximo. Because Proximo, he just wanted to use those slaves for his own benefit for his own financial gain and likewise jesus could have done the same thing and just kept you for himself forced you to be obedient coerced you to live the way that he wants you to live but look at the end of verse eight what does he do he gives gifts to men you know what that means you know who those gifts are it's you and me after taking you captive, he doesn't keep you for himself, for his own good. He says, I'm going to give you to the church to serve that brother or sister next to you. That's the kind of king that we have. He's not usurping all of us for his own good, but he's Taking us captive so that you could be a gift to the brother and sister next to you. That's the kind of master that we have. Isn't that the kind of master you want to serve? Look at verse 8. He ascended on high. He led a host of captives. And he gives them right back to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the teachers, shepherds, the saints... Why? Because you and I, we are his most prized possession. One pastor says, Jesus received us as gifts and gave us, the people, back to the church as gifts. What is Jesus' most prized possession? It's you. It's the brother and sister next to you. And he demonstrated that by laying down his life for you. Not just so that you could have a free ticket in heaven, but so much more but so that you can walk like your God, the Father, so you can walk with his family. And what does he do with those prized possessions, the brothers and sisters next to you? He gives them back to you for your growth, for your sake, to help you live this life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not just zapping you, but giving them to you so that you can change, that you can build his church i want you to have this shift the way that we see one another to know that what pleases christ your king the most is when he sees you his most prized possession giving yourself up for others in this church the way that jesus himself did nothing pleases him more and as we wrap up these series on gospel community can i challenge you to take time to consider what that next step might be for you what's your next step of ownership in this church do you see a need praise god i hear that our community groups are like mini churches some having 20 to 30 people do you see a need where their need they need more leaders do you see a need where people need help setting up what's that next step take any group any club any organization religious or non-religious you know when they feel like they're part of that group it's not when they come in and they see an open chair. They feel like they're part of the group when they have a responsibility in that group. And we as a church, we will always have an open chair for everyone. But I will tell you this, the moment you feel like you belong to this church is when you take ownership of this church, not as someone else's, but as yours. And whatever that might be, might be the most unseen act of humble service to the most demanding job, It pleases Christ all the same because it's not what you do, but the fact that you're trying to model after him, after Jesus, who doesn't hoard all his gifts for himself, but he gives his gifts back to men. I want to end with this this final anecdote. There's a pastor by the name of Kent Hughes, and he remembers going to a Christmas program, and his two children were in two different places. His older daughter, Holly, she was eight years old. She had the lead role in the story, The Gift of the Magi. She was very talented. He remembers her uh, just speaking very clearly, her voice being very articulate, projecting them so that the whole audience could hear. She was very dramatic, moving about the stage, using her hands, and she stole the show. And after her performance, the whole audience just, just clapped and applauded her. And they joined as parents. And he says, later came Kent's play, his younger son. Now, his younger son had been working on his four lines since Thanksgiving. And even those four lines, he had a very hard time remembering them. Not only that, he was very terrified of the stage. He says he still remembers his son with his white robe, but his black tennis shoes just shaking underneath them. And it was his turn. His eyes got big. He, as a parent, he held his breath, and he struggled and stumbled through his four lines. But after he got through it, barely, he says, we were ecstatic. He writes, now there was no way we could have applauded because it was the middle of the play. But our hearts applauded. How pleased we were with both our children. Both. Both doesn't matter what you do but the fact that you're willing to lay down your life lay down your gifts lay down your time your energy for christ's most prized possession that's the people in this room that's how you can show that you do have this gospel message let's pray before we partake in communion, I just want to give everyone just a few seconds just to pray and ask God to reveal what changes does he want you to take in your life when it comes to this church. And before you do so, to think about the grace that he's given you, what he has done for you. And take some time to ask God, God, how do you want me to rearrange my life for your glory, for your church? We'll enter a time of communion.